You're listening to Brains On, where we get curious about the science of everything. Hey team, it's Sandin. I'm sure you've looked up at the night sky and wondered, are we alone? Are there other life forms out there? Could there be some alien on some other distant planet staring up at its sky, wondering about me, asking if I exist? If so, you and that alien should check out our episode on the search for life on other planets. It's one of our favorites from early on in BrainZone's history, and we're bringing it back from the vaults to share with you right now. I'll be back in a little bit for the latest Brains Honor Roll. In the meantime, let's have Molly take it away. Hi, I'm Molly Bloom, and here with me today is 12-year-old Gwen Alexander. Hi, Gwen. Hi. Gwen helped us figure out the topic for today's show. Gwen wants to be an astrophysicist when she grows up, someone who studies the physics of the universe. So she's the perfect match to help us talk about space. Think about how many stars you can see when you stare into space. Remember, that's just a tiny fraction of what's out there. There's so much to talk about when it comes to space, we couldn't come up with a question. So we asked Gwyn to. Is there life on other planets? This question has captured the imagination of many writers over time. They've imagined what these life forms would look like, where they would come from. Would they come in peace? Or in violence. I spoke with an 11-year-old science fiction writer named Jasper Nordine. We asked him to write a piece inspired by this very question. I Am the Universe by Jasper Nordine. Aliens are awesome. Some are so huge, 50,000 beings could fit on their pinky fingertips. Some are so tiny that several trillion of them could live on a head of a pin. There is a theory, however, that the universe itself is a massive alien. The stars and planets are merely pores on its skin. In fact, every species there is might be a separate universe. Near Pluto, 2082. The space shuttle landed on the newly discovered moon of the moon of the moon of Pluto. It was a barren place, mostly just rock and mountains and a few cacti and other plants. I kept walking forward the rest of the exploration squad ahead of me. The notification on my space helmet's interactive CPU or that my oxygen supply was slowly dwindling, meaning the moon had no atmosphere, unlike the other two moons of Pluto. There were four other members of the squad, all under 30. The ground shook, creating a crack that swallowed up a crew member at the front. We dashed forward, hoping to outrun it. I turned around and saw another member with a claw protruding from his forehead. I kept running, nearing a huge cliff. I saw a giant asteroid overhead that crashed into the ground. I awoke under a pile of rock. I pushed the top off and fell down a small hill of rock on the surface. A few meters away, I saw the last remaining member of the squad, or at least his arm sticking out of a rock pile. I reached up to my face. The glass on my helmet was shattered. I gave a small gasp of surprise and fell over, unconscious. I woke again in a small tube of glass. It rose higher and higher into the stars. All the stars coalesced into a single circle of light in an empty black ocean. To my surprise, billions and billions of other circles of light appeared around me. I rose even higher as the blackness slowly became more of an apricot color. I got a very huge shock. The entire universe was a giant alien. 
That was just the beginning of I Am the Universe by Jasper Nordine. You can read the rest of his story at our website, brainson.org. I sat down with Jasper to talk about the first time he wrote a story. Around when I was seven or eight, I wrote a book about this family of secret agents. What was it called? The Secret Agent Family. (laughs) Nice. And when you write stories, do you plan them out ahead of time, or do you just kind of start writing and see what happens? I make up a beginning, a few characters, and an ending. I just squeeze in the middle as I go along. So you come up with the ending before you really start writing it? Yeah. I try to make it as epic as possible. So I, I put in a few explosions if I can. And, yeah. I try not to make them too emotional because, uh, yeah, I don't like emotional stuff that much. So how many hours a week do you spend writing? Um, I remember one time on a snow day, my mom left around oh, 10 o'clock and I was working on the story. She got back around 5 o'clock and I was still working nonstop. So wow. that's about the longest I've ever done. Usually I spend about two hours if I can. And so these days, what are you most interested in writing about? Mostly science fiction. So what is it about science fiction that attracts you? I just kind of find it interesting, like, what some people think the future might be like or um, what they think the universe itself might be like. Do you think there is life out there beyond Earth? I think there definitely is. They're probably searching for us, too. And then are there things about the universe itself that sort of inspire the aliens that you create? Um, Kind of like how a lot of plants have, like, no oxygen, like some life forms might have adapted to live without oxygen, which makes them extremely hard to fight or whatever. So these life forms are living on planets that are not like ours. Yeah, like completely different. Some could be like a lot like ours. Some could be like volcanic or mostly aquatic, like with no water on it at all or no atmosphere. So since the planets are different, then the beings on these planets would yeah, be different as well. Since they had to adapt to find a way to survive. Very interesting. And if they didn't, they would end up dying. Survival of the fittest. If you want to see the aliens Jasper invented for his story, you can see his drawings at our website. And while you're there, you can send us your pictures of your own alien creations. Head on to the website, brainson.org. So, Gwen, do you think there's life out there? It's very possible. It might not be intelligent life, but there, there could be bacteria on other planets. When you imagine life forms out there, do you ever imagine them as aliens who might come visit us or try to contact us? Yes, but that's not very... It's hard to imagine that there could be those, and it's hard to know what they would look like. Cause you're, so you're more, more focused on the facts that we actually know right now. Yeah. Do you think that if there is life out there, that it would look like humans or would it look totally different? It depends on the planet they come from. Like Jasper said, if they come from a volcanic planet, they might be different because they have to adapt to their surroundings. Most of the ones I imagine at least are green. (laughs) I don't know. And they have one eye. Green, one-eyed aliens. Yes. (laughs) So we all have our ideas about what life might be out there, but what ideas do scientists have about this? I interviewed Laura Danley. She's an astronomer and the curator of Griffith Observatory in Los Angeles, California. I asked her, what makes a life-bearing planet? Well, first of all, you need to have 
the gravity of a planet to pull together all the ingredients so that the chemical reactions of life can take place. Mm -hmm. And the second thing that we think is really essential is that you need to have liquid water. We think that liquid water is the best fluid medium for life. But a lot of the reasons are, first of all, water, you know, is made up of a, an oxygen atom with two hydrogens on sort of one end. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's like a mini magnet. It has a, a positive end and a negative end because just the way the atom is arranged. Cool. And so it can act as a catalyst. It can make chemical reactions happen. And it can act as a solvent. It can break apart atoms. And so a planet with liquid water is important. You need a power source, some sort of energy source. We have the sun. Yep. You can also get life around volcanic vents in the ocean. So, so even volcano energy is good enough. Oh, yeah. And then lastly, you, you just need the right molecules. You need the right atoms. Life on Earth needs carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, oxygen, phosphorus, and sulfur. So you need the right ingredients, you need a liquid medium, and you need a source of energy all contained on a planet, and you need that planet to be stable for a long enough period of time that the chemistry can cook up life and make it happen. Yeah, that's really cool. What are scientists currently doing to search for life in the universe? What have they found that proves or hints at the possibility of life? Scientists have gotten really enthusiastic about searching, not directly for life, but for evidence of environments where life could happen. As a scientist, you like to make hypotheses and you like to do experiments to test those hypotheses. So the more we learn about life on Earth and what makes it possible for life to survive on Earth, the more it tells us about what kinds of environments on other planets might be suitable for life. Particularly on Mars, because it's close enough for us to go there and send lots of missions, we're looking to see whether or not those conditions ever existed in the past or maybe exist in the present. We're pretty sure now that liquid water existed on Mars in the past in abundance and enough abundance that life might have formed because the conditions were right. Cool. What we don't know is whether there's any liquid water there today. We know there's no liquid water on the surface, but there's some evidence that there could be liquid water under the surface and maybe there's a whole subsurface ecosystem with life in it. We just don't know. That would be cool. That would be very cool. <laughs> so that's why we go to study it. And that's why, you know, this has been kind of a, a long program of a couple of decades we've been sending spacecraft. And it will be uh, when you get to be in college at grad school and start going to work, perhaps uh, that'll be the time when we're really drilling under Mars and looking for water and, and seeing if there aren't little creatures under the surface. So you mentioned this earlier that a planet could be like different than Earth and still have life. So a planet containing life wouldn't have to be exactly like Earth? No, it wouldn't. In fact, there's a moon in our solar system that uh, circles the planet Jupiter called Europa. Yeah, I've heard of it. Yeah, Europa's a great uh, moon. It's yeah. one of the four major moons that was seen by Galileo when he looked at, at Jupiter with his little telescope. And you can see it through, well, if you have really good binoculars and good eyes, but you can certainly see it through a small telescope. There are four moons around Jupiter, and I'll mm -hmm. just tell this to you because someone told this to me when I was about your age, and I've always remembered it. The way to remember them are the initials I Eat Green Cats, <laughs> I-E-G-C, and that's for Io, Europa, Ganymede, and Callisto. So that's the order of the moons around Jupiter, <laughs> the big ones. 
The second moon, Europa, we think has a huge liquid water ocean underneath of it. There's a lot of evidence for that. We think that as it circles around Jupiter, tidal forces from the planet, just like the moon has mm -hmm. tidal forces on Earth, that tidal forces, gravitational tug from Jupiter to Europa, stretches and pulls the moon and melts the ice oh. inside. Oh, cool. So here we have this completely icy moon. It isn't even a planet. It's a moon. Yeah. And it's got a totally, you know, cracked but solid ice surface crust. Mm -hmm. But underneath, there's probably a really big liquid ocean, and it may have all the right ingredients and conditions for life. That would be cool. It would be very cool. And it's nothing like Earth. And yeah. And we couldn't go there and survive. Yeah. But uh, the creatures, if there are creatures that came to life there, are perfectly adapted to it and think mm -hmm. it's just a beautiful day there on Europa where they are, yeah. even if it's not anything like Earth. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Well, you're more than welcome. I really enjoyed talking to you. I, li I like talking to you, too. That was fun. Secrets locked away. Will you be a place that we can visit someday? You are a PA. You are a PA. Hey, maybe we should scan this icy moon for signs of life. I hope we get too soon. Thank you. 
that song. Man, so good. Okay, that was E-U-R-O-P-A by The Young Plus. And here's some deep insidery info. Our very own Mark Sanchez wrote and performed that song. Very cool stuff, Mark. Speaking of cool stuff, time to give a shout out to all the fans who sent us cool stuff, like drawings, letters, questions, high fives, and mystery sounds. That's right. It's time for the honor roll. Let's do this. Mallory and Janie from Minneapolis, Nicholas and Lucas from Endicott, New York, Maya from Chandler, Arizona, Oliver and Elliot from Bermuda, Ellie, Alistair and Genevieve from Chester, South Carolina, Mateo and Olivia from Mexico City, Ella from Waterloo, Ontario, Emil and Simona from Kenmore, Washington, Jack, Sophie and Noah from Glendale, Arizona, Beaters from Allentown, Charlie from Reno, Cecilia and Joshua from Berkeley, Brady and Cohen from Saskatoon, Abby and Sophie from The Woodlands, Texas, Baxter and Atticus from Bellevue, Washington, Harper and Johnny from Utah, Jesse from Long Beach, Elise and Cooper from San Diego, Elias, Zoe and Wren from Baltimore, Adam and Ham in Indiana, Leo from New York City, Owen from Griswold, Connecticut, Clara and James from Malibu, Rudy and Nomi from Cambridge, Arnica from Seattle, Elizabeth and Abigail from Arkansas, Madeline from Portland, Oregon, Frazier and Celeste from Australia, Simon and Izzy from Seattle, Amog and Shripad from Minnesota, Bella from Shenzhen, China, and Cameron and Chloe from Hampton, Virginia. Do you have questions for us, or a drawing, or a mystery sound? Send them to brainson at mpr.org. That's M as in Minnesota, by the way. Oh, and we've been having a lot of fun on Twitter and Instagram lately, so feel free to follow us there. We're at brains underscore on. Thanks. Now, back to Molly and Kate and the search for life on other planets. You're listening to Brains On. Today we're talking about the search for life in the universe. Now that your ears are warmed up, it's time for the mystery sound. Here it is. I'm sure you have a guess about what the mystery sound is, and we will get back to it in a little bit. First, another question. What does a search for life have in common with a fairy tale? Turns out, a lot. We all know the story of Goldilocks, right? She sneaks into this house, and she finds some food. Ugh, this porridge is too cold. Ugh, this porridge is too hot. This porridge is just right. She apparently really likes porridge. Anyway, of course, after eating all the porridge, Goldilocks gets tired, and she wants to take a nap. This bed is too hard. Oh, this bed is too soft. This bed is just right. So the thing about Goldilocks is she was a bit of a picky diva. But more importantly, she also went from one extreme to another until she found a happy medium. Well, scientists believe life is a bit like Goldilocks. It needs the right conditions to exist. Well, duh. Life has refined tastes, obviously. Like moi. Sure. So when scientists search for life on other planets, they're looking for planets in something called the Goldilocks zone. Love the name. Good job picking that one, scientists. So planets are thought to be in this Goldilocks zone if they are not too close or not too far from their home star. Here in our solar system, planets like Mercury and Venus are close to the sun, making them super hot and not good for life. 
seriously? Turn up the air conditioning, Venus. I'm baking here. Anyone got an iced tea? But planets like Neptune are so far away from our sun, they're freezing all the time, which is also bad for life. Uh, where is my parka? You see, scientists think that in order for life to form on a planet, you need liquid water. So planets that are too hot are bad because all the water will evaporate into gas. Planets that are too cold are no good because all the water will freeze. But planets in the Goldilocks zone are just right. Water can stay water because the temperatures are mostly above freezing and below boiling. That's why I only love Earth. Water is liquid here, perfect for a swim in the pool. The list of planets with potential for life gets even bigger if you consider that some may have liquid water under the surface. That's why scientists are interested in Jupiter's moon Europa. It's frozen on top, but seems to be liquid underneath. Hey, so this house I'm in is pretty boring. I mean, I ate all the porridge and already took a nap. <laughs> Thinking of taking a vacation someplace new. How many habitable planets besides this one are out there anyway? Well, scientists think there are lots of other planets around distant stars that are also in this so-called Goldilocks zone. In fact, some scientists estimate there could be billions of planets in our galaxy alone that fit the bill. And they've already identified dozens of them. Like, oh my god, brilliant. I'll start packing my bags. Just think, eating all the porridge I want on some exotic tropical distant planet drinks by the lake. Ah, oh, I can't wait. Should I bring my sun hat? Uh, I hate to burst your bubble, Goldilocks, but the nearest planet in a habitable zone is still trillions of miles away. We don't have spaceships capable of taking us there. Seriously? So you just build up my hopes to shoot them down. Ugh, scientists are the worst. Oh, we don't have spaceships that can fly trillions of miles, Goldilocks, because we don't want you to take any vacation, blah, blah, blah. I should make some calls and get your research funding revoked. Whoa, whoa, come on. It's not my fault they haven't invented those spaceships. Wait, b by the way, Goldilocks, uh, that house you snuck into, wasn't it the home of some bears? What? Your story, it's called Goldilocks and the Three Bears, right? I'm pretty sure it is. And if I remember correctly, you just ate all their porridge. Man, they're going to be really hungry when they get home. Uh, wait, bears? Yeah, bears. So, um, hey, good luck with that. I didn't sign up for bears. I'm terrible with animals. Besides, I was just about to leave. <laughs> yeah, they'll never even know I was here. So remember, kids, the Goldilocks zone is the area around a sun that's not too hot and not too cold. Perfect for liquid water and life. And also, kids, remember, don't eat a bear's porridge. They don't like that. Help. So what'd you think? I think it's cool that there could be life underneath the surface of a planet. That would be cool. Like if on Mars there's a whole city, cities of life forms underneath the surface. Yeah, it sort of opens up a whole nother load of possibilities yeah. there. Yeah. So now back to that mystery sound. Mystery sound. To me, that sounds like a space can opener. Do you have any guesses? It sounds like popcorn. Oh, yeah. Space popcorn. <laughs> Space popcorn. Should we find out what it is? Sure. Okay. 
I'm Colette Lore, and I drive robots on Mars. You just heard the sound of a Martian rover driving over rocks. So do you know what a rover is? Yeah, isn't a rover something that explores other planets? Exactly. So it's a robotic vehicle that's sent to a distant place to study it and send information back to scientists on Earth. It's kind of like a really high-tech remote-controlled car for other planets. Colette, who you just heard from, works with rovers for NASA in Pasadena, California. And that sound wasn't recorded on Mars. It was actually recorded right here on Earth when NASA was testing a model of a rover that was later sent to Mars. Colette helps drive that rover on Mars by sending it commands from here on Earth. Let's hear a little bit more about that. The rover is named Curiosity. It has six wheels, a drill, it has a scoop. We have the arm that is in the front of the vehicle and we can reach out and touch rocks. And then it also has a mast that holds the cameras and that basically acts as our eyes on the surface of Mars. We've got cameras that help us with our navigation, cameras that are closer to the ground so that we can see what's directly in front of us. So if there's a particular rock we want to touch, we can get a sort of a dog's eye view of the rock. And we also have a camera that's at the end of the arm so you can actually do a Martian selfie. So basically we spend our time, you know, picking scientifically interesting targets. So we identify what the target is and then we'll send the rover to it through driving. And then once we get to the science target of interest, then we will put the arm out, we'll touch the rock, and we'll do various chemistry experiments to see what the rock is made of. We're on a Martian road trip. In a lot of ways, it feels like a road trip that you might take with your family. You stop along the way, you decide you know, which sites you want to see as you're going along, and that way it's a lot of fun. That's it for this episode of Brains On. This episode was produced by Mark Sanchez, Sandin Totten, and Molly Bloom. Many thanks to Jennifer Miller, Cheryl Alexander, Jesse Alexander, Lisa Berg, Andrew Nordine, Jeff Jones, Laura Danley, Eric Ringham, and Johnny Vince Evans. Brains On is a co-production of NPR News and KPCC. You can find more episodes and fun stuff at our website, brainson.org, or on iTunes. We have a Facebook page. Like us there and follow us on Twitter. We're at Brains underscore on. Phew. Thanks for listening to this episode of Brains On. I'm Gwen Alexander. And I'm Molly Bloom. All right, now go fire up your neurons.